Hey there. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few weeks and, um, you know, it's been hit or miss all year, hasn't it? Uh, my year has gotten extremely busy. And so uh, some of you know the story behind that. Some of you don't, but it's okay. I'm not going to re-explain that here. Um, but I am excited to have this for you. And so years ago, uh, Oscar Romero was um, given a sainthood status uh, by the Catholic Church. And so what happened was I had questions. I reached out to a friend of mine, Paul Thomas Darzelek, who kind of walked me through the history of that because he, in different ways, lived parts of it and is connected to it in ways that I am not. Sainthood as well is something that just confuses me as a person, uh, less so now, but still a little bit. And so I reached out to him. I had questions. And because of the generosity of the kind of person that he is, he recorded the answer and sent it to me. And it was multiple hours long, which is really cool. I mixed that and broke it apart and decided to share it with the world. And so for some of you, that would have been back in the first year of the episodes. You would have heard it intermixed with a conversation about prophecy in the Old Testament with Walter Brueggemann. But for everyone else, parts two, three, and four were never really heard because I had that blocked behind the paywall of Patreon. And the more that I thought about that, I don't like that. As many of you know that are on Patreon, I have slowed down producing content as much there, uh, though I am still extremely grateful for the people there because they continue to allow this to happen. I'm still mulling over how I best want to use the time and energy it takes for the podcast to continue to be a thing as my time and energy is being pulled in other directions. A lot of that is because my kids are older. Uh, again, when I started this show, I only had two kids and one that was like an infant. So I had three kids. Uh, but now one of my kids is a teenager and they're all doing different things. And it's been a lot of years. It's crazy to think how long that this has been a deal. And thank each and every single one of you for that. Either way, I'm digressing. So I put episodes two, three, and four on Patreon, and not a lot of people have heard those. But this is a story I think that needs to be heard. I had intended to release this around the middle of October, because that is the anniversary of when Oscar Romero was sainted. I don't think that that's the way that you say that, but I've said that and I'm not going to fix it. So that's what it is. And so what I'm going to do is over the next month, instead of doing bi-weekly episodes, we are going to do weekly episodes because I don't want to stretch this out for two months, but I'm going to give you all four of these. And so I think it's a cool story. And I'm really thankful that Paul put it together. I am also not going to fix the past editing. And so if it sounds different, it's because it was recorded on a different system and setup. And, and uh, yeah, so here we go, a four part series. I hope that you come back next week. And if you learn anything from this, and honestly, I'm going to listen to it again because it's been long enough that I don't remember a lot of a lot of it. Email me, email the show, shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter or the, the places that you shoot messages at. I would love to hear what you're learning from it. Share it with a friend. It's an amazing story. not a war most people wanted to fight. These soldiers that were in the military, often um, 
They were just recruited. You stop a bus and everybody between the age 14 and 30, you're in the army now. I had a personal friend who he said, whenever it would happen, I would just crunch my arm up like I had cerebral palsy and I would do what they said. I'd say, oh, fight in the military. And he would act like he was crippled. And he said he twice got out of being recruited that way. The culture within the military and the guerrilla, the insurgents, is very different. If in the course of your duties you're slaughtering people, you know, children, men, women, you're, you're obeying orders, if you shed a tear, your commander would take you aside in front of everybody, shoot you in the head. And they'd say, that's what happens. That's what happens when you cry for the enemy, when you cry for the communist. Now, the guerrillas, they were, it was a totally different culture. Uh, desperate for soldiers, they let men and women fight. They felt like you fight harder if you're, if you're fighting for a loved one. I had friends that, were, that fought in the revolution. Um, I had a girlfriend, and she was between the ages of 15 to 17. She's the one I mentioned earlier. Her, her dad was a labor organizer. Her older sisters joined the revolution, and, and one of them, who she always looked up to, she had this long, beautiful hair. Raquel found her sister's severed head in a tree tied to a branch by that hair. She found another sister raped and murdered in a ditch. So she did what everybody did when you get pissed off. You've seen enough blood splatter on the wall. You go, who can I join to fight back? And that's what she did. That's what a lot of people did. Like my friend said, you can't know what you would have done. People are joining the guerrilla to survive. You're joining one side or the other. And if you're a poor peasant, the guerrilla probably looks like joining the resistance. It's, that's joining up with Han Solo against Darth Vader. So now Darth Vader's looking out and he's saying, now the archbishop is talking directly to our soldiers. Soldiers that we know don't necessarily want to fight their fight because they're obeying our commands. And now he's shouting commands at them. Romero lived unlike previous bishops. You can live really well if you're the archbishop of El Salvador, but he chose to live in a really small quarters. You can still go visit it in, in a hospital called Divina Providencia. And he lived there in a really humble quarters, this little tiny single bed, little typewriter in the corner. And on that typewriter, he wrote a letter to then-President Jimmy Carter saying, please stop sending weapons to our country. They're only being used to repress the people. That was Jimmy Carter, the, the, the peaceful president. Uh, it would get a lot worse real soon in the Reagan administration. You can go see that typewriter at Divina Providencia. And he lived there because that was the cancer hospital that would tend to people who couldn't afford expensive cancer care. So when he wasn't out in rural communities and when he wasn't in church saying mass, when he would go home, his ministry was to people who were suffering from cancer. And I've talked to the little nuns that worked there and he was so dear to them. And they, they said he knew very well that he would meet a violent end. And they said, sometimes, you know, he'd come to breakfast in the morning and we'd say, how'd you sleep? And he'd say, oh, you know, a, an avocado fell on my roof. I thought it was the end when an avocado falls on, a, on the kind of roof they have there. It sounds like a gunshot, you know, and they 
so they would smile uncomfortably and they'd say, I don't, you know, I don't know how he's keeping his sanity. There was an atheist psychologist who spent a bunch of time with Romero. And he said, there is just nothing in my clinical history that explains to me how somebody could have such calm while facing these kinds of storms, love him or hate him, think he's right or think he's wrong. He's under constant threat of death, and, and it's a death everybody knew was going to come. And so there, one of his duties at Divina Providencia Cancer Hospital was to conduct Mass at the chapel. And he was saying a Mass that was in honor of a murdered independent journalist. It was um, sometimes we have birthdays in that environment. Sometimes you had death days where a year after you would remember somebody and he was saying a mass in this guy's honor for his mom. And the reading for the day, if you don't know, the Catholic Church has a lectionary. So the reading is is prescribed. There's, you know, a gospel and a couple Old Testament readings prescribed in the lectionary every day of the week. And that day, the gospel reading was from the gospel of John. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. It's outside the church. Some men who had drawn straws were in a van, and they drove slowly in front of the church, the doors of which were open. Buildings aren't air-conditioned there, so some, you leave the doors open to, for air circulation. And with a rifle, with a laser scope, driving by, they shot Romero in the heart from behind the altar, and he fell. And the nuns from the Divina Providencia rushed to his aid. He was rushed to a hospital, but it was there was no hope. He was never going to live. He was killed. That murder, uh, that assassination, that martyrdom, it really catalyzed things. Um, in the anger of its aftermath, those five revolutionary forces, they joined up and they formed the FMLN in 1980. And the war raged on from, from that year until peace accords were signed in 1992. Okay, so another question on the list was Radio Venceremos? Radio Venceremos, uh, literally translated would be the radio we will overcome. Uh, commonly it was translated as rebel radio. It's a good story to give a feel of the war and its environment and the backdrop against which Romero lived and operated and was killed. I mentioned earlier how consolidated the media was. And one alternative to the mainstream media, which was just the party line, uh, one alternative was the Catholic radio station. And another alternative, the other alternative, was Radio Venceremos. That was a mobile radio unit that the guerrilla insurgents would tell their side of the story from. It was a radio unit that was operated from caves, from houses. It was on the move all the time because 
you can triangulate on it, um, on the signal, and find out where it's coming from and go take it and go kill people. Now, to know the story of Rebel Radio, you're going to need to know the story's Voldemort figure. There was a colonel named Domingo Monterosa. This guy was horrible. There was a massacre at El Mosote. You can Google online El Mosote, the massacre at El Mosote, New Yorker. There was a New Yorker article by a man named Mark Danner. It rocked the world. It, it finally gave like Americans a perspective. This was back when uh, we had journalists, uh, not just uh, news entertainers, circus clowns. But uh, Mark Danner was somebody that investigated this massacre. And the massacre was especially heinous. It was in a place called Morasan. It was especially heinous because El Mosote was a place where people did not support the government, but they did not support the guerrillas either. They were decidedly neutral. And a lot of rural communities, they, you know, it was known, hey, we support the muchachos. The muchachos are the insurgents. Well, these guys tried to stay out of it. And as a signal to tell people, no, choose a side. saw this massacre. And it was just a massacre, plain and simple. It was just people rounded up and butchered. I've talked to people personally from El Mosote who said that they have seen women's pregnant stomachs just sliced out, fetuses pulled from them. People get sick during war. This isn't a Salvadoran thing. This happens in wars, at least wars that are fought face-to-face -face, as opposed to wars that are fought in ways that feel a bit more like a like a video game i've had friends fought in desert storm they said well me it looked like a video game i saw everything through a screen well this wasn't that this was the highly trained atlacatl battalion the infamous atlacatl special forces battalion Colonel Monterrosa himself trained at the U.S.-sponsored School of the Americas, which operated in Panama. Members of the Atlacatl Battalion received training at Fort Benning, Georgia, here in the U.S. of A. And I personally knew the sole survivor of the massacre, where everyone was just rounded up, and women were separated, and children were separated, and marched in different directions. And one woman named Rufina Amaya, while she was being marched away, she fell down. And then she just stayed down. And she noticed, hey, they didn't see me. And the women she was in line with, they were marched away and then they were raped. And she could hear that happening. The children in churches in rural El Salvador... Catholic churches have a, they call it a hermitage. It's a place where, so one priest covers a whole lot of churches, and a priest will go from place to place in the rural countryside uh, saying mass, conducting sacraments. There's a massive priest shortage there. And so people will build a hermitage, so that's so their padrecito can have a place to stay. It's, it incentivizes them to spend more time in their community. Everybody loves their, their local priest. And the children were rounded up in, into this hermitage, and they were just being stabbed with bayonets. And then the walls, they were set on fire. And Rufina now, she's fallen, and she's just praying, and she's praying. And she said there's maybe 120 kids in this hermitage just being stabbed to death and then set on fire. And among those 100 kids in there 
she could hear the screams of her four children, all of them murdered. She lost her entire family and her husband. She lost her kids, four of them. And she was just laying there and she said, I was just praying, God, if you, if you keep me alive, I will make sure that this is known. Her fate was that after that happened, she instantly said, oh no. And she went into hiding. Oh no, I have witnessed this heinous crime. My government's going to want me dead. I'm the only survivor. She was taken in then by, by guerrillas, said, we'll, we'll protect you. She ended up leaving, going and living at a refugee camp across the border in Honduras. She gave her testimony in New York at the United Nations. She said, you know, you, I'm a rural woman. I'd barely ever been in a car, much less an airplane. And the very first time I flew, you might have you been thought, thought a country girl would be afraid of flying in an airplane. No, I was afraid of getting off that airplane in New York City. All I knew, I knew, everybody knew the United States was sponsoring this war. As I get off that plane to testify because I promised to God I would make sure that word of this gets out if God allows me to survive. What makes me think I'm not going to get off that plane and just have a bullet put through my head? That's a real possibility. I mean, there's a lot of ruthless murder. There's a lot of good reason for them to want me dead, the people that are sponsoring this war. And she ended up doing her best to tell her side of the story for the rest of her life. You can, if you want to read a whole book about it, that same author, Mark Danner, wrote a book by the same name, The Massacre at El Mosote. And it's a really fascinating book about a massacre, but also the intrigue that goes around its cover-up, the geopolitical maneuvering that happens in Washington, D.C., as we don't want people to know that this happened. The intellectual author of that massacre is our Voldemort figure, Domingo Monterrosa. And he was an arrogant fella, and he decided he wanted to be the hero who would go down in history for being the guy who captured Radio Venceremos, Rebel Radio. So the guerrillas are, are operating this radio on the run. They know that Domingo Monterrosa is after them. And they know his personality. They know he's not going to rest until he captures this radio. And they're on the run all the time. So they devise a plan. They set up this guerrilla camp. And they make a fire. They kill some chickens. They spread some feathers around. They, do, they make it all look like a, a guerrilla camp. And they go about and they intentionally get detected by Colonel Monterosa's soldiers. Now, you got to know these guerrillas. These are people who know how to survive. This war went on for a dozen years. And I myself saw near where I lived, when I lived in a place called Suchitoto, people would come out and they would show me a well. So picture a water well, big tube goes down into the ground. And then horizontally, there would be, you can't see it from the top, there would be just a horizontal hole that goes to the side. You were skilled. You could be chasing after a guerrero, and you could be 20 feet behind him. And in front of your very eyes, he'll just jump down a water well. And then you take your flashlight. You look down that water well. You don't see a person. You see water down there. And what he did was he, he could jump down. They would practice this. 
um, because the, the, the rural countryside, that was their turf. That's where they had the advantage. They would practice, you jump down a well, and then you have a horizontal hole going down out the side so that you can, you're going down the walls, and then you disappear into a side. And looking from the top, you can't see where he is. He just disappears before your eyes. Or there would be spots in a river where you dig, like a beaver dam, where you dig a hole at the bottom of the river, and then that hole comes up in the bank. So you can dig down. And you'll, you know, they'll be filled with water. If you come up above the level of the river in a bank, then you can have a little chamber with air. So then the, the, the military can be chasing after you. You jump into a river and you emerge underground in your little mole hole and breathe air from there. You know, the, 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 the people chasing you, could, they could sift through that river for, for an hour. They'll never find you. They'll wait for you to come up. I saw him go in the river right here. No, never comes up. Well, the, this is their turf. And so these folks, these guerrillas, they know they can be detected by the military. And so then the military unit, they go, oh, man, we've got them. We found the guerrilla camp. So they're on the run, and they're carrying the radio. So they're radioing back to Domingo Monterosa. We've caught them. We've you know, zeroed in on them. We're on the chase. They chase them so that it, it's on. The guerrilleros, the guerrillas, they drop the mobile radio unit, and then they disappear into the wilderness. So now Domingo Monterrosa's people have captured the radio, and at that moment, Radio Venceremos, rebel radio, goes silent. Across the country, people's hearts sink. They're like, oh no, they've captured the radio. And then in the mainstream media news, Colonel Monterrosa announces, I have captured rebel radio. The guerrilleros, they knew what kind of guy he was. They knew that he was very arrogant, very megalomaniacal. They knew he was going to make a press release out of this. So he says, bring me the radio. And he calls the press and he alerts them. So then he's there standing with rebel radio. And like, you know, like his trophy, you know, and he's, he's, he's taken advantage of the photo op. The press is taking a picture of him and he puts that radio into his helicopter and the press is there watching as he climbs into the helicopter. He flies away with rebel radio and then the gorillas are waiting there in the bushes. And as his helicopter gets up to a certain height, they push the detonation button and that rebel radio was a bomb, and it explodes. And that's the end of Domingo Monterosa, Lord Voldemort. You can still go see the, the remnants of his helicopter at the Museum of the Revolution. It's a really homegrown museum in the mountains of Perkin, Morasan. You know, you hear the people tell the story and the kinds of ingenuity on which they had to rely against an, a Goliath that was so much more powerful than them. And you find yourself going, yeah, the bad guy's dead. And then go, oh, cheer in for the death of a bad guy. It's always tragic. And war is tragic. The next set of questions had to do with looking back at Romero, what do we know about him that called him into service in the church? I alluded to this earlier when I was talking about Octavio Ortiz a little bit. You know, he was just a smart kid, a good kid. He loved the church. When you're a rural child, one of the only roads to upward mobility or to an education it was kind of a, I want to get out, but he was also a faithful kid from a very early age. 
um, and he maintained it throughout his life. Um, as he was a bishop, you know, other bishops that served with him, they said, you know, whenever there was a big decision to be made, we would deliberate, he would pray. He would uh, very commonly say, you know, I'm, uh, please excuse me. And instead of, you know, bouncing, processing verbally with, with his peers, he would be off praying. He maintained a very rich prayer life throughout his life, and he kind of had that disposition as a kid. Now, most of the people I knew who knew him, and I knew a lot of people that knew him personally, they knew him personally as Archbishop. They didn't know. I don't know anybody who knew little Boyd Romero, but there was a biography by uh, James Brockman that I would recommend if you want to learn more about him that I read at one time. So he was kind of just a smart, faithful, rural kid. You know, for him, the Catholic Church was church. The existence of Protestant or evangelical churches in El Salvador is mostly a post-war phenomenon. And uh, yeah, he was—that's why he got into the ministry. It was just faithfulness to God. Next question is, what was his posture or opinion on the above, the above being the social and religious environment earlier in his ministry? And kind of covered that earlier, but just to reiterate, his posture was one of faithfulness to the church, and that was all that mattered to him. Mentioned earlier how he, he didn't see himself as having undergone a conversion after priests started getting murdered after Rutilio Grande got m murdered. He just was faithful to God and, you know, as a Catholic bishop, faithful to the church, to his kind of structure of church. Did he face opposing views from peers? Yes, he did. And those opposing views existed previous to him during his ministry and after. There are different... The Catholic church is... a a bigger tent than a lot of non-Catholics imagine. So there is vast differences in orders between Franciscans and Opus Dei and Jesuits. And, you know, it's as varied as people are. And some people were like, our job is to keep order and the people keeping order are the government. So there were people who just thought he ought to shut up and just stay quiet and preserve his own, save his own life. You know, the whole spectrum of viewpoints existed among his peers within the church, and he was careful in discerning. His position was not an emotional one. He was remarkably level-headed. I mean, it was an emotional one in that he loved people. What was the Vatican stance on all this at the time? That's an interesting question. The Pope at that time was Pope John Paul II. Now, he is Polish, and so he grew up in a Poland where the Soviet Union had invaded. In his mind, the, the, the communists are the bad guys, and he kind of didn't understand, like, like most people, he didn't understand the dynamics exactly. You know, he did what the U.S. media did, which is oversimplify this into a struggle between, you know, law and order and those communists trying to take over the world. And it's better framed as a, as a struggle between an oppressive government and its people. That's one of the things that most pressed me when I moved there was like, oh my gosh, I had read everything about this and I, I had always heard this 
framed as a conflict between factions of the extreme right and extreme left. Well, the extreme right was the government we're supporting. The extreme left was the people. And I thought when when reporters went down there and they found this heinous story about, you know, some terrible war story, I thought they searched and searched for that. No, that stuff happened to everybody. It's only six million people there. And everybody had somebody they loved affected by this war in one way or another. But back to Pope John Paul came and visited Romero, and Romero was nothing but faithful. He loved Pope John Paul. And uh, he kind of got reprimanded, though. Paul, John Paul said, hey, man, what are you doing here? And and Romero quoted Pope John Paul to Pope John Paul. So uh, popes, as well as bishops, they, they issue, you know, uh, pastoral letters. And these were letters that Romero took to heart and read. You know, he didn't quote Pope John Paul to Pope John Paul in a snarky, like, well, you said it kind of way. No, it was it was like, no, here's what you say. I'm fulfilling your ministry. And that's how he saw it. And he remained faithful to Pope John Paul, though the Pope had some reservations. I think later he came to understand some of the nuance more, but he remained virulently anti-communist, you know, throughout. Was the church complicit in anything? Depends on how you define the church uh, and how you would define complicit. Some people would say that the church, by its silence previous to Romero, was complicit in the oppression of the people. Romero himself, his image was, after the war, co-opted by the left and the right. Uh, You could be in El Salvador and the FMLN, those were the insurgents, they use Romero's image right next to Che Guevara. Che Guevara is the Cuban revolutionary that it's, it's more fun to get romantic about his memory because he was able to remain more pure unto his death than Fidel Castro was. So he's a big hero to any people's movement, any insurgency in Latin America and around the world. And it's for me, it's heartbreaking to see Che Guevara's image. Uh, I have as much fun as the next guy reading a Che Guevara biography, and he is kind of fun to romanticize. Um, people did in his time. Jean-Paul Sartre said that, you know, he is the man of our generation. We're all just a bunch of existentialist philosophers. We're all wars. He's a, words. He's a man of action. I chose at some point to dedicate myself to the kingdom of God. And that's not a kingdom represented by Che Guevara, but in my view, it is a kingdom represented by Romero very well. He never endorsed violence, Uh, but you would think that, you know, by the way the FMLN just waves his image around, that, that he was on their side of the war. Conversely, you would think by the way he's demonized by the oligarchy that that he was indeed an agitator. That's how they saw him, an agitator that animates or gives energy to the insurgency. He only was insofar as he he said, you know, these are people too. God loves them just like God loves you, and they need to be representative. They need to have a voice. Now, the church, if the church is the people, as Romero would say it was, then it would be nice to think that the phenomenon of the Christian-based communities was uh, these people, you know, the people who were like reading the Bible in their native tongue and going, wait a minute, this is 
we're just like the people of Galilee. It would be nice if they all remained a peaceful movement like Jesus' followers, but like Peter drawing his sword, they drew the sword, except their sword was AK-47. Okay, there was a phenomenon called the Christian base community, and these were social justice-loving people who were seeing life through the lens of Scripture as they newly understood it, and some remained peaceful for the re- their entire lives. There were some people who, like I said earlier, could only stand to see so much blood splatter. Those people include Catholic catechists, lay ministers, and priests. There were priests who said, you know what, I, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to go join the FMLN. And there were church communities who supported the muchachos, the insurgents. You know, some of these church communities, they would give food to government soldiers, too. There was a woman told a story of the government soldiers who came along, you know, and committed some atrocity. And then she says, and then we had them over for lunch. You know, my wife stopped them and said, why do you have them over for lunch? They just like, they possibly killed your son. And he said, well, you know, these, these kids, they have moms somewhere, too, and they were hungry. So especially women, there were people like that who kept their cool, kept level-headed, kept committed to what I see as the gospel and a kingdom in which a God who is love is on the throne and the government is not the, the guerrilla is not. Um, But then there were also people whose churches, you know, explicitly supported the revolution. Now, that's not the church hierarchy. Church hierarchy, if anything, was leaning right, leaning towards, you know, the governments of the world, the kingdoms of this world, minus, you know, those committed voices. So, again, this is a case of the Catholic Church being such a big tent and, and the varieties of human experience within it, the institution institutional church, you know, certainly never endorsed the insurgents. Elements of it could have been seen to be endorsing the government, the keepers of law and order who kept that law and order the way Caesar did, not the way Jesus did. The Pax Romana, the Pax Salvadoreña, the peace that comes at the end of a rifle barrel. How long was the tension at the time? The tension had been building for throughout the late 70s, second half of that decade. And then it just, you know, the straw broke the camel's back in 1980. Romero's assassination, it's a, these points are never, you know, too firm, but that's as firm a point as any of a, this, the onset of the war. Is that tension gone now? Well, when the peace accords were signed in 1992, you know, elements of the FMLN and the government did a pretty good job of in- integrating. I hope that you will join in in the conversation. Give me your feedback. Email the show, 
reach out to Paul Thomas. You can get a hold of him at paulthomasauthor.com or butterfliesbook.com. Give him some feedback. Tell him what you thought. Tell him what you learned. I think this conversation and conversations like it are needed for the church as a whole to come together as a community. I look forward to further deepening this conversation with those of you on the Patreon channels, and I'll see you all there. Thank you.